Welcome to the High Performance Nursing Podcast, where we seek to coach, educate, and inspire nurses globally to achieve their high performance potential. Learn from influential clinicians having curious conversations to help you navigate your unique high performance nursing career path. Join me, your host, Liam Caswell, nursepreneur, coach, and mentor, as we explore how you can create a balanced, high performance nursing career. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to this episode of High Performance Nursing. I'm so pleased that you're here today and I have an amazing guest from the critical care specialty, Rachel Longhurst. Hi Rachel, how are you? Hi Liam, I'm really well. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm so excited to be here and I'm glad that you're here. We have lots of people within the high performance nursing community that are really interested in intensive care. So hopefully we can unpack some of that for them today. But first and foremost, I'm going to tell you all about Rachel and how amazing she is. So Rachel is the clinical nurse educator for intensive and coronary care units at Calvary Public Hospital in Canberra. Rachel has spent her career working in critical care as a registered nurse and clinical development nurse before taking on the educator role five years ago. She has acted in clinical nurse consultant roles as well as the assistant director of nursing, fancy, for critical care. She supplements her clinical education role with sessional work at the University of Canberra and Griffith University. Rachel has a master's in critical care nursing and is currently undertaking postgraduate study in health professional education. Rachel is a member of the New South Wales ACT ACCCN committee, sits on the ACCCN National Events Committee and is the co-convener for the ACCCN annual conference to be held in Canberra 2021. Rachel is passionate about critical care nursing, clinical leadership, and clinical education with the aim of promoting high-quality, safe, evidence-based care to patients. When not working, Rachel loves spending time traveling Australia in her camper van with her husband and her two children. Wow. How do you have any time? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. Wow. That is such an impressive introduction. I'm so glad to have you here to talk about ICU and unpack all of that. So oh, thank you for having me, Liam. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. No, it's, this is going to be great. So in terms of your nursing career, we've kind of covered a little bit of, of it, but in high performance nursing podcasts, we really like to unpack like how you got to become a clinical nurse educator and be involved in so many amazing things. So would you mind sharing how you kind of got to this point in your career? Yeah. So I started nursing in the middle of 2006, took a new graduate program in a private hospital. I, from then, really knew that I wanted to get to critical care. I did my last student placement in an ICU, HDU, coronary care environment. And I had amazing nurses that worked alongside me that invested a lot of time in me. And I was really quite keen to get back there. Uh, So I did my time in medical. I did some time in surgical, got a really good foundation under my belt. And then I went back to critical care for my last placement in my new grad year and I was fortunate enough to get a job at the end of that. I spent four years in that unit growing uh, as a junior critical care nurse. In 2000 and at the end of 2010 it would have been I decided that it was time for me to go and do my postgrad certificate and I made a decision, a difficult decision, to move across into the public uh, where I would just have a little bit more flexibility in how I could do that. Uh, Now, at the time I did my critical care certificate, we had to rotate through various areas for our clinical placement. So I spent some time in a tertiary ICU, a tertiary ED, and then some time in my current ICU. 
getting lots of different perspectives on ICU, ED, management of patients. And then I went back to my current unit and worked there as a registered nurse, a level one, and then a level two. Uh, got a position as a clinical development nurse. And then finally in 2015, got my dream position as a, as a nurse educator. I'd supplemented a lot of my clinical work with education work. Uh, in 2009, the person I would probably say my first men nursing mentor offered me an opportunity to go and work at CIT and get my certificate for in training and assessment. And I jumped on that. And even though some people were like, oh, you haven't really been a nurse for very long, it was actually really good for me to go and work alongside the enrolled nurses. It meant I had to learn things over and over again and things really stuck in my mind. Uh, and then I got to teach them to an amazing group of enrolled nurses. Uh, and from there, I got involved with the University of Canberra. I did some clinical facilitation, some clinical supervision. And then as I uh, got a little bit older and had my children, I did some marking for uh, both the University of Canberra and Griffith University as well, which I still currently do uh, in my spare time. <laughs> That's awesome. Amazing. Like what an amazing career. It's so funny because Rachel and I have worked together and it's so funny, I always talk about the fact that we, as nurses, we're just so busy, or as I like to reframe it, productive at work, that we don't actually get to know each other's story. Like, we don't actually get to dive deep. We just, we learn about everybody's kind of career history on such a transactional level, and we don't take the time to unpack it, but that's amazing. So there's a few things I'd love to dive into with that. Sure. How important has mentorship and coaching been? You mentioned that there was a, a pivotal moment there where you had a kind of a trigger mentor who was amazing for your career and it kind of just pushed you on that path. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so she was actually one of the nurses who I worked with as a student who was, she just loves education. And it was so evident in everything that she did. She took so much time to talk me through things, to quiz me on things, to push me outside my comfort zone at times, but she invested in me. And from that, I think her passion was a little bit contagious. Uh, and when she offered me that opportunity, uh, she, she boosted me up and she believed in me. So it meant I, I then believed in myself a little bit. Um, and she's been an ongoing mentor throughout my, my career not necessarily in a formal capacity, but certainly informally. And then I have had a couple of other mentors in sort of leadership space as well. Awesome. And, and, you know, when you think, when you look at the benefit of mentorship and coaching within nursing, you know, it's so powerful to be invested in and have that mentor believe in your abilities. Not that we need to thrive on that external validation of we're on the right path. But it's a note to everybody listening that, you know, that student that you might be working with, you have such a power over their career trajectory. It, they're in such an influential space. It's so important to take that opportunity to really show them what an amazing career nursing could be. Yeah. And I think one negative experience can change the course of their career as well. Absolutely. Definitely. And in terms of your transition from registered nurse on the floor, moving into that senior registered nurse, the CDN and the clinical nurse education role, your dream role, how did that come about? Like, what did you need to do or what was kind of your strategy in, in moving from the RN kind of level one to the three? Look, I think it was having a goal to start with. And I know you've talked a little bit about goal setting and how important it is. And that does really resonate with me. You've got to have a clear goal 
and steps that you need to put in place. It's not realistic to come in on day one and go, I'm going to be a nurse educator tomorrow, but it is realistic to come in and go, short term, I'm going to do, you know, my postgrad, I'm going to be the best bedside nurse I can be. And then longer term, I'm going to be a clinical nurse educator and thinking about the things that uh, you might need to do to get to that point. So I think my certificate for in training and assessment was a really fundamental step for me to move into the education space and getting that experience working firstly with enrolled nursing students and then registered nursing students that then can be put onto your CV. It looks good when you go for a job in an education space where you can show that you've actually had that experience. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a full-time role. It was, you know, a day a week for me. Uh, so I chose to work part-time in the clinical space. So I would work 0.8 and then dedicate a day a week to working in education, whether that be with the enrolled nurse space or the registered nurse space. Excellent. And so valuable that that investment of development, you know, from being the RN on the floor to the educator and, and really kind of looking at what do I need to get to the next point? And I think sometimes that's lacking in nursing. Sometimes we maybe think that we might be able to get to the next point because we've been in a specialty for five years or we've been in a specialty for 10 years or 40 years. And it's stopping in, and like you say, looking at goals, looking at small wins that you can have along the way within your career, working locally, with your educator or your CDN or your CNC or your manager to try and strategize for your career trajectory as you move forward. I think that's super important. And obviously, postgraduate education has been a key component for you. You've talked about the CERT 4. There's a lot of discussion within nursing about, is it beneficial for me to continue studying? And you've, you've gone down that road and you've done your master's and you continue to work in that space. What's your take on that? What would you say to nurses trying to considering at the moment whether or not to study? Look, I think it's invaluable. And I think as we move forward in nursing, it's certainly something that you see as a, you know, desirable requirement. And in some cases, an essential requirement to moving up to that next level. For me, I am a career studier. So, you know, yes, I've, I've done my, my certificate and then my diploma and then my master's. And then I took a break and did some other study that was unrelated to nursing. And then I came back and I'm now doing my certificate in health professional education. And that was to do with the fact that my Cert 4 had actually expired and debating what was going to be more valuable for me in the long term. I chose to go with the, the health professional education. And for me, that was about credibility. I'm seen as a, a specialist in education and it was the same for critical care to be a specialist in that field. I think you've really got to add the postgraduate study to tick that box, um, to give you that credibility as an expert practitioner. Mm, mm. And I think that people undervalue that bit of paper and people, you know, sometimes think, oh, it's just a bit of paper that you've got, but there's so many skills that come with, you know, studying a postgraduate qualification certificate, diploma, cert form training and assessment, even just a module as part of a postgraduate qualification, a master's, very, very valuable. And I think it just gives you a broader insight into maybe some of the um, more pressing issues within nursing, healthcare, and it helps shape you as a clinician. Yeah with my health professional education, it's an interprofessional certificate. So there's people from medicine, there's people from allied health, all in the same space, talking about education from their different perspectives. And I have got so much out of listening to people in uh, those other disciplines 
interesting that during my own PDP this year, my manager said to me, she's like, I can actually see what this study is doing for you and making you think about things from a slightly different perspective. So that was really valuable feedback for me. Mm. And such power investing in yourself and your own growth and development and leading by example, because you're right when you're in those positions, you're in, uh, you're a role model, um, yeah. you're a change maker, you're a mentor, a coach, and you do need to have that level of expertise and, and that level of qualification, in my opinion, to be able to stand up in front of a room of you know, 20, 30 people and present topics and implement change within the workforce. Otherwise, that engagement is completely lacking. Yeah, look, I am a big believer in me needing to be credible to do my job the best way that I can and to be taken seriously and to be that expert practitioner in both a critical care environment and in the education space. Mm. So in terms of high performance nursing, what would that look like in the intensive care environment? Look, to really just break it down, and we've had many discussions about this, you and I, and certainly within our unit, within our leadership team about that. And to me, it's actually about nurses performing to the full gamut of what's identified in our professional codes and our professional standards documents. So it's not just about coming into work and showing up and doing the job at the bedside. It's about realising that you are a clinical leader. Even if you're not team leading, you are still a clinical leader as a registered nurse, that teaching students is part of your responsibility, that contributing to quality improvement and making things better, not just for your patient today, but for all the patients you'll look after in the future is a really important part of your job. Utilising evidence-based practice, going to the research, being involved in policy and procedure to make sure that we're delivering the best care that we possibly can. To me, that is what high performance nursing has its roots in. Mm, couldn't agree more. And to you know, add to that, you know, the self-care component of being a nurse and you know, making sure that you're that well-rounded clinician that comes to work and delivers high performance care to patients, because ultimately that's our job. And then also looking after yourself, looking after your peers, demonstrating respect in the workplace. I'm really trying to work on that cultural aspect of healthcare that seems to be a bit of a recurring headache that we need to kind of unpack. So I think that's a great definition of, of high performance nursing within the ICU environment. In terms of being a nurse educator, I know a lot of people within the high performance nursing community and some of the nurses that I've worked with are on that career path and they're adamant I want to be an ICU nurse educator and it's a great place to be such an influential spot and you know I think it's important to acknowledge that as educators we don't only educate there is so much more to the role as an educator I'm sure Rachel will agree but we're educators confidants mentors coaches policy writers change makers we're researchers we're leaders we're role models like where do you stop culture champions we're the patient's voice we're advocates and it just it can be very all-encompassing that role it can be quite confronting when you first come into an education role so what does a day in the life of an ICU educator look like I think one of the things I really love about my job is that no two days are the same you know, you can turn up to work and it might be really busy and so you get to spend time on the floor with the staff that you're working with and help out clinically. Other times it might be that you are you are reviewing 
policy or you're writing new policies because you found a gap in something that hasn't been happening that should have been happening or there's been a major change in the research and recommendations. So you're working on, on getting that through the system. It's being a confident. I spend a lot of time just talking to people people will just knock on the door and I've always been very open about having a policy where I want people to come in, sit down and just, you know, if they need to have a rant, then that's, that's what we do. We have a rant, we let it out and it stays in, in those four walls. If people, you know, need to talk to me about a clinical problem that they want uh, investigated or reviewed, then we do that as well. I, while I work within the ICU, I also have a body of work that I do within the hospital. So sitting on various committees and participating in making things, uh, I guess, better within the whole system, not just inside the ICU. So there's a lot of networking in that space. It's one of the ways that I met you is mm. you work with other amazing educators that exist in that space. I think people, you know, often ask what an educator does. And it's one of the things I think I've really struggled with to come up with a, a cool answer. And, you know, I was working through a conversation with someone the other day, trying to really nut down my job. And I come up with the, the notion of quality controller, that an educator does a lot of quality control, whether that is through education, through in-servicing, through delivering study days, through teaching ALS or writing policy or being out on the floor and being a presence and giving people feedback in, the, in real time. There's a lot that goes into it. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, I think sometimes educators themselves can feel a little bit invisible because they do a lot of things behind the scenes that people don't always uh, see and know about. Mm. Incredibly, incredibly important to the functioning or the good functioning of a healthcare system. Mm. And a central component of building a high-performance culture, you know, evidence-based, utilising the research, and I think you're right. In general, in terms of the the behind the scenes work, there's just so much advocacy that goes on behind the scenes, and not only for patients but for staff, and advocating for staff to get to study days, and um, batting for staff that are maybe going through a difficult time. And then there's things like underperformance and managing underperformance in the workplace, and and that's a really tricky area to navigate. And I think you know, as healthcare professionals, as nurses, those things are things that we're we're never taught. We never really get any kind of education about how to navigate that world. And I guess the best piece of advice I've had is that I've got two ears and one mouth. And it sounds very simple, basic, but I think as nurses, we're always fixers. Like we want to fix something that's about stepping back and um, being in the moment and letting that individual work through it and helping them to try and see you know, the, the potential issue or and work through that challenge. And I think communication in general is one of the most underutilised skills that, that we have. A big part of communication is listening to people and listening in a way that they feel heard and validating what they're, they're putting on the table. That authenticity is so important because people will smell a rat straight away. They'll, you know, they'll sniff you out and they're not interested. And not only does that have an impact on your credibility as a, as a leader and educator, they then you know, might not engage with your education or potentially come to education and, and be problematic. Lots of things could escalate from that. So super important to build rapport. You know, I think yeah, you get to you just know, build rapport with people. That engagement is half the battle. If you can engage people, you can get them to do most things mm. that you're doing uh, right down to mandatory training. Mm. How do you navigate that? Like, how do you engage staff? I guess it does go back to thinking about what my values are and I do value being authentic 
I take my job seriously. I love what I do, but I guess I try to spill that passion over. I like to try and be approachable and I hope that people find that they can come and talk to me about a problem and I'm somebody who will actually do something about uh, problems that are raised. So I try to be honest. I try to be open and approachable and I try very hard to be transparent so that, you know, if we, if we want to change something, I'm open about the reasons why and how it's going to be done and to try and involve people in that process. Because I think, you know, to engage anybody in, in change, you need them, you need them on board. I think the actual process of providing good education to people makes people engage. Um, so if people feel educated and they feel like got a, a voice in that space, then, you know, that buys an engagement in itself. Mm. I guess it's about creating that psychologically safe learning environment where people can come show up, be vulnerable, explore the curiosity and embrace new information you know, in a non-threatening way. And I think yep. that's something we really have to drive home within nursing and probably healthcare in general, is that in order for us to break down the barriers and to get through to staff or to relay a, mes- a message that's important, we need that safe environment. Yeah, and I think one of the real challenges in ICU is that we have to keep patients safe and that there's a lot of high acuity and high skill requirement staff safe and patient safe versus creating that psychological safety again it comes back to communication around having good processes that you know i am going to stop you if i see you do something that is unsafe and i will take over uh, so that people know that that's the process and you don't surprise them with that but also developing rapport with those people so that they do trust you uh, they trust that the feedback that you give them will be delivered in a way that is respectful in a private location at an appropriate time uh, all of those kinds of things. Love that. And, you know, we don't do enough of that. We don't create that safe space for people to unpack their learnings or, you know, the opportunities where they've potentially um, maybe, you know, administered a medication incorrectly or something has happened on the shift. And, and I think that's so important to create that space for them to unpack that safely and see it as a learning opportunity. You know, obviously depending on the severity of the issue, but we want to see that as a learning opportunity and grow from it. Use it. You're never going to do it again, hopefully. And, you know, if people aren't given the opportunity to learn from things, then they go, well, I'm just going to stop learning. And that's never a good thing. No, no, not at all. I'd like to ask you what you love about your role in education, because I know from working with you that you are uber passionate about education. And when I was the educator, I was drawing upon your skills, knowledge, expertise frequently, and I really valued that. So what do you love about your role? So many things. (laughs) How long do we have? (laughs) Natural curiosity for education. You know, I love being able to share new things with people or uh, revamping old things and just the notion of, of teaching and seeing somebody who starts out knowing not very much progress to a point where they are able to, to look after their first mechanically ventilated patient solo, to care for their first crashing patient. That is really exciting. I'm always, you know, that time of year where, where they start to take their own ventilated patients really excites me because you can just see how far they've come. I've worked with, I guess, a lot of people over the years now and to have them come and thank you and say, you know, thank you for taking a chance on me. Thank you for bringing me into the ICU. I've learnt so much. 
you know, it's, it's very, very rewarding. Yeah. And to, I guess, see people function in an environment that is stressful, that isn't always a good outcome and to, to work with those people. It's a real privilege what I do on a day-to-day basis. I, yeah, I think I was invested in and I try to pay that investment forward. It helps that I have a love for what I do. Yeah. And I think also what comes through, Jeanette, when you talk about education and when you were talking earlier is that idea of having a really clear understanding of your values. As, and I think maybe that's a space that we probably could explore a little bit more. And I think in order to get to know yourself, you need to have that conversation and, and explore what your values might be and what your vision for the future is. And often, you know, I started nursing when I was 19. I was qualified at 19 and you know, I didn't know what I was bloody doing. Loved being in the profession and knew I wanted to help people, but did I know who I was, what I was doing? No. Did I make some rash? Of course I did. We all have. We've been there. But I think we maybe undervalue and underestimate the power in us exploring our values and what what do we want our career to look like? Not what does Leah, my educator, want my career to look like? What do I want it to look like? And I think that's something that you've talked about that is really inspiring. Uh, look, we've done some work within our leadership team in the ICU around understanding our values and it was actually a really powerful experience for everyone to sit in the room and talk about what their values were not just so that we all, all know that, but to realise why sometimes you and your manager might have a disagreement about something. Uh, and it's not necessarily because you, you don't care about the same things. It's because you're coming at it from a slightly different angle or a slightly different value set. And I think that's really changed the way we, we work within our team. Mm. We can see, you know, I know that that person really values uh, X, Y and Z, whereas I value A, B and C. So, yeah, there's a potential clash there. How do we get around that? Mm. actually want the same thing. And that speaks volumes for culture. Do you know, to be able to have that open discussion within a team, amazing, do you know? And, and you're right, being able to recognise that Liam likes information delivered in this format or, yeah, Liam might find this approach quite confrontational is great, great information as an educator, but even on the, on the ground level, on the front line, peer-to-peer, because again, we don't know each other on that deeper level, um, unless you're in a very close knit unit. So very valuable, super valuable. I'd like to segue into what the ideal ICU nurse might look like, because we have lots of aspiring ICU nurses within the high performance nursing community, and it is an amazing career path to take but it doesn't suit everybody. And as much as I loved being an ICU nurse, I also love not being an ICU nurse anymore because it does take its toll. And and we'll unpack that a little bit as we move through. But what does the ideal ICU nurse look like? Look, it is an interesting question and something I've been thinking about a lot this week because we have actually been interviewing for our transition program for 2021. But I think, you know, we like people to have an interest in uh, attention to detail. We're all a little bit anal retentive down in the ICU. We're all very controlling and we like to manage things. Uh, so if that doesn't fit your personality, you're probably better suited to the emergency department. Meow. Uh, <laughs> no, I love my emergency department. Yeah, we do love ET. You're just messy with your wires. Yeah, you just need to untie those lines. I actually really enjoyed my time in the emergency department, brief though it, it was. 
have a lot of respect for my AD colleagues. We love you. <laughs> but attention to detail is is super important in the ICU. You know, when you're a new ICU nurse, we don't expect you to have all of the knowledge and skills. We will work with you to to build those. But what we need is people who can think critically about things, uh, who can look at the big picture, uh, who can conduct really good assessments. But again, we can we can work with people to build those clinical skills. It's it's probably the non-technical skills that a little bit harder to teach. So people who can communicate, people who are self-aware, people with resilience. I think resilience is a big thing in the ICU. And when we bring people in knowing that we're going to put them in situations that are going to impact them sometimes for a really long time to come. So you have to be able to, to find ways to manage that. And it helps if you've got those in place before you come into ICU. Critical thinking, yeah, I can't emphasise that one enough. You have to be able to, to think about the big things, the small things, put it all together. The ability to, to predict, the ability to prioritise, the ability to manage a deteriorating patient are all kind of those key things that we're, we're looking for. Mm. Uh, I think interest. So, you know, if you want to come to ICU, start working on, on things that are, are pushing you towards that. I personally look at what people have done in the last 12 months in terms of education, whether they're new or whether they're ongoing staff, because it tells me how self-motivated they are. It tells me whether they're individuals that are likely to keep, to keep growing. Uh, and they're the types of people that, that we want to employ, people who are keen to, to build on their knowledge and skills, to keep refreshing their knowledge and skills, to be engaged with what's happening within the unit. Mm. I'd love to pick up on two things you talked about there. And that sounds like an amazing ICU nurse, by the way, and uh, great qualities, great attributes. But when we're looking at like an ideal ICU nurse or looking at somebody that might be thinking of applying, how do you, how do you prepare for what you might come across in ICU? Because it can be uber confronting. It can be so scary. And you know that we've all had those moments where we've just been confronted with the most horrific situations how do you start working on that? It's a really hard question and there's Sorry. not... Yeah. <laughs> I think having strategies for dealing with stress. So, you know, there are still some things that I walk into a room and they fundamentally impact me and I do have to go away and think about it and process it and eventually put it away somewhere. But I think learning to reflect is a, is a huge skill that people need to have, whether you're an ICU nurse or uh, any other type of nurse. Uh, we need that reflective capacity to be able to work out, you know, what went well, what didn't go well, what can I improve next time? How might I manage that differently? What strategies do I need to put in place? That self-awareness to go, actually, I'm taking this home with me, not just tonight, but I've taken it home with me every night for a week and I'm now not giving my family the best of me because I'm still stuck in my head about what happened a week ago. So having strategies to deal with that. And for some people, it's exercise. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, it's journaling. I've been really fortunate this year to be involved in some training around clinical supervision for reflective practice. And that's been amazing. And I would really like to see that uh, rolled out within, within nursing, because I think that's got huge benefits for helping people to deal with, you know, all kinds of things that they're seeing and doing in their everyday practice, but particularly to deal with and put away the things that are challenging them. 
And it's so hard because, you know, burnout is on the rise. We all like to talk about burnout and patient ratios and add COVID and a global pandemic on top of that. You know, we're looking at a future where, you know, nursing might not be an overly um, exciting career prospect for people that are potentially um, thinking of coming into health because, like, this has just hit us in the face this year, in 2020, 2021. And we've all just kind of gone, wow, like our job was already hard enough. And now we've got this added layer of complexity, trauma, heartache, because we all come into nursing to help people. Yeah. That's a general vibe, right? We all come in to help and to be there and to hold somebody's hand and, and to create that beautiful environment for the patient and the family. But that's just something at the moment that we can't do. And that's taking its toll and that idea of secondary trauma, you know, as a nurse seeing something or seeing someone pass away or being there with somebody during a complex ICU admission. And then as an educator, a CDN, a nurse manager, seeing it from a different lens and that quality control perspective of, I know what should be happening here, but it's not, or maybe it's deviated a little bit from the norm. And then you're right. Do we take that home? How do you process that? Mm. Mm. it's really challenging and I think it is, and a lot of work to be done in that space it's different for everyone there's not mm. the right thing that works for all people mm. I think what I can say is copious amounts of alcohol ongoing don't work <laughs> tried and tested moderation <laughs> neither does overeating I've tried that as well <laughs> but I love the idea of clinical supervision and our allied health colleagues do this amazingly and they are so strict with it and they protect the time and they make it happen because we know that when we invest in our people, we have amazing patient outcomes and we have a happy, healthy culture and workplace. And where I work currently, we really have invested in this rounding, this idea of rounding. It's not quite clinical supervision, but we have rounding with kind of preset questions that we meet the staff and we do the kind of reflective cycle, what's working well, what's not working mm -hmm. well, what, what do you need? How can we best support you? How can I help you in your career? Move to yeah. the next point. And it's powerful. Five minutes can change somebody's whole day and, and they've just got a spring in the step because they've been given a platform. Well, just the notion of being listened to for a dedicated space of time does wonders for people. When people yeah. heard, they feel feel validated and they feel more empowered and that they're cared about. Mm. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't really want to turn up to work in a place that doesn't really care about me. No. And, you know, then that equates to lower sick leave, you know, um, better culture, better teamwork, camaraderie at work. I mean, the benefits are, you know, endless. Um, yeah, it's, it's about time we jump on the clinical supervision bandwagon. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. What is a common myth about ICU that you'd like to debunk? Something that comes up all the time about ICU nurses that you're like, no, that's not real. That's not a thing. Hard question, Liam. Put you on the spot. You have, yeah. <laughs> the ED nurses would be saying right now, our cables aren't messy. Like our lines yeah. are fine. Like, do you not know how busy we are? Maybe I just don't know what they're all saying about us behind our back. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, nursing in general has got a, a lot of myths and people say to me, oh, you wipe bums for a living. <laughs> oh, no, not exactly. Mm. Get an educator to teach people how to do that. Or you're the doctor's handmaid. Yeah, there's a lot mm. of things that go back to the patriarchy and the 
old ways of doing things. I think my favourite ICU one is you only have one patient. Oh, yeah, no, that's probably the, the best one. I'd like to work in ICU because I'd really only like to look after one patient. Oh, just wait. Just wait for those 18 pumps event and two filters and whatever else. And, and you know, that's one of the, the really cool things that our, our transition staff learn when they get on a ventilator and they go, oh, my goodness, I didn't realise it was actually going to be this hard, that there was going to be so much to do. There's a never-ending list of things that mm. done. And you're like, yes, you can actually be super busy with mm really sick patient that actually need multiple people in that room to contribute to what's happening in that space. Mm. And that's why you need to be a high performer. Ultimately, you need ICU critical care areas. I mean, all areas of health need high performers, but the stakes are so high in that environment, really. And the slightest little slip of attention to detail, I think that makes us ICU nurses perfectionists. And then it you know, comes into all aspects of our lives. And we're like, what do you mean that can't be done? Like, of course. Or we're trying to preempt the future, do you know, with the yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're always the trying crystal to ball. everything. Yeah. And mostly it pays off, but occasionally things catch us unaware and mm. happen. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to act and remain calm and, you know, try and get things done. Absolutely. Look, this has been amazing, Rachel. I'm so grateful for all of your time. I have one final question for you around the fact that we are trying to create this culture of nurses empowering nurses. And it sounds like you have got a great environment in the workplace and you've really established this great team where nurses do empower nurses and moving away from that old, you know, nurses eat the young to how can we empower nurses of the future and maybe the listeners here, what can they take away and implement in the workplace do you have any words of wisdom around how you, how you might do that or how they could do that in the work look i i think it's about investment and i talked about this before that somebody invested in me and it's really contributed to the fact that i want to go out and now do that with other people and i've seen this with our transitional staff that have come through over the years and they get a lot of time and energy invested in them but they come out the other side and they're really excited to make that investment in the next lot of people that are coming in under them. The students that come in, uh, because they've had so much dedicated to them, they're super keen to then pass that on and to be in a position where they've got the knowledge and skills to share that uh, with the people coming through. And so I think any investment that you make in an engaged person will get paid for in multiples. And that is a fundamental part of changing our culture is, you know, not eating our young, uh, but actually realizing that people coming through are our colleagues they are the people who are going to replace us when we retire Uh, and i know that i certainly as a an elderly person laying in a hospital bed potentially want somebody with that level of skill looking after me and you know keeping that all to myself that doesn't help the next people coming through it doesn't help our patients certainly doesn't help our future patients so moving away from that notion of well you know that's the way things were when i was young that's how I was trained to, well, that's, that's okay. That's how it was. And there are some good things about that model and some not so good things about that model. But we know that in today's world, that good culture does wonders, that having supportive managers, supportive educators, supportive team around us uh, makes us want to be at work. It makes us feel part of a team, makes us feel valued. Amazing. We can, you know, do an amazing job to then care for our patients. Yeah, like couldn't have said it any better. It is so powerful. And, you know, remember people, 
the only constant is change. Do you know, like we just have to keep evolving. We have to stop that narrative of, oh, back in my day. And, you know, when I catch myself saying that, I'm like, oh, no, I can't. Because we just have to keep, keep it moving forward you know, until we're yep. replaced by the robots and whatever else is going to happen. So Yeah, that'll be an interesting day, <laughs> won't it? Well, thank you so much. I, we did mention at the start that you are part of the ACCN and there is a conference on this year. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So that is our annual education conference. We're hoping that it's going to go ahead physically in person, COVID pending. Uh, if not, it will uh, go virtual, I believe. Uh, but that is a, a really amazing educational conference for critical care nurses, whether they're just starting out or whether they're extremely experienced. Uh, and the program so far is shaping up to be really good. The draft has been released, so you can actually go onto the ACCN website and have a look at that. Um, but I would encourage anyone in the critical care space to to get along to that if they can. Amazing, amazing. Well, Rachel, thank you so much. I am thrilled to have had you on the High Performance Nursing Podcast. You embody everything there is to be a high performance nurse, so thank you. And I'm sure this episode will inspire lots of future ICU nurses and nurses across different specialties. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Liam. Thank you so much for listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. I would love you to join my online community of high performance nurses. Join us on Facebook at Liam Caswell or check out my website at liamcaswell.com. Until next time, I have been your host Liam Caswell and I am truly grateful for the opportunity to help you build your high performance nursing career. Be kind to yourself and stay forever curious.